This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, uh, podcast 19, I think. And with me uh, from Los Angeles is Joe Nava again. I'm so, so happy to have Joe back. Hi, Joe. Hello, John. I'm really happy to be back on as well. It's interesting. Um, I did a podcast yesterday with Michael Petroselli, and I, and I listened to it today. And Michael's great. Michael's like a really great, super smart young guy. And I, and I like having people that young um, on here because if I just had podcasts with my contemporaries, it would be this like geriatric exercise. <laughs> um, and, and Michael is terrific and was terrific. But I was in a really bad mood. And when I listened to it, I was... I thought, God, I hated how I sounded in a sense um, because I sounded really snarky and kind of overamped. Maybe, maybe it was a caffeine problem. Yeah. But I, th I think it was mostly um, that, I, that I didn't realize I was angry. It was the first podcast we'd done, I had done, in, in a couple of weeks because um, the family and I uh, were on vacation kind of around Norway because, you know, we can't go to Sweden yet. Yeah. Um, as normal as things are in Norway, the border to Sweden is still shut. Um, and, uh, and I had a great time on the vacation. I saw friends from Oslo that I, I rarely get to see who are artists and cinematographer and his wife who's a director. Um, and, and we, they have a new daughter. And so we dragged the kids around to like the Norwegian version of Disneyland, I guess it's, it's, um, uh, it was actually, um, reminded me of that David Foster Wallace essay, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Oh, that's, a great um, essay. that's, that's how I felt, but, but, <laughs> but because the kids were there and my friends were there and my wife and it, we had a wonderful time. Anyway, I, I was away from social media a lot and had intentionally just avoided, um, you know, accessing it when, I was staying at these places, these cabins and stuff. And when I returned, it all felt much worse than when I had left it. I probably just the impression I got, but um, I, you know, I, I think it made me like, and I wasn't aware of it, incredibly angry and uh, frustrated and probably depressed. Um, and then, um, you know, Chris Rossi wrote me the other day, um, our friend and yes. uh, was complaining about baseball. You know, like you said, baseball season's about to start, but without any fans. Oh my God. He said, but yeah. they're pumping in, you know, crowd noise into the stadium and on television. He said, who is that for? And then at the end, he said, everything is fucked. <laughs> um, well, John, and, it, uh, you know, just to add a quick point to that. Yeah. It's even worse with the Dodgers. You know, Chris and I are huge Dodger fans. Actually, he's one of the last people I saw a Dodger game with. Um, and, uh, how, however, I turned on an exhibition game last night, uh, Dodgers versus Diamondbacks. Uh, the Dodgers completely creamed the Diamondbacks. However, if you look in the background, you see these uh, paper cutouts of people. No. Uh, yes. Yes. It's totally grotesque. It is, uh, it's, I mean, it, it, it's almost hilarious. So, uh, wow. there are paper cutouts, which you can pay the Dodgers to submit a picture of yourself. They would print it out and they would put it in the back in the seats behind the camera. So they looks like there are fans at the game. 
Wow. Absolutely. That's, yeah, I mean, that's something out of, you know, Max Headroom. I mean, it, that's just, I, you can't make it up, you know. It actually um, reminded me of David Foster Wallace's uh, novel as well, Infinite Jest. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but uh, he starts talking about uh, the invention of, um, of uh, video calls. And, um, and at first, everybody is uh, really into it. Uh, however, they realize that um, sometimes they don't want to be seen on camera. So uh, they start fashioning these masks that people wear <laughs> when they speak, um, you know, like we're doing right now on Zoom or on a, you know, on a video conference. I just think it's uh, hilarious um, and very... Um, appropriate for what is going on right now yeah yeah well i mean i anyway i you know yeah i uh, and i was struck with you know that that line everything is fucked and i thought yeah that's how i feel i mean um you know they don't they don't even give you baseball you know anyway i i was i was a kind of appalled at how i sounded because i'm not a snarky person i don't think and um and and it was it was you know had nothing to do with Michael who was terrific it was just me being um, being in a shitty mood and it and it and I don't like sounding like that and this is what is happening because um, you know I don't know how to process this I I mean social media you these these voices appear there was a guy today on social media I just was checking Facebook and he was arguing that you know we should all wear face masks it wasn't that much to ask and you know we don't really know how dangerous the virus is and um and that he sat with his friend of a quarter of a century in with with plastic gloves on he held his hand while this person died and i thought um i don't know the relevance of this because people die, old people, you know, sadly die all the time. Yes. And, and they die from a variety of things, including old age. And um, uh, it's as if, it's as if this virus um, and the fact that some people die from it is, is like, unique a novelty of some sort it's very strange i don't know it and that but it's this kind of voice i guess what i wanted to say it, it it's a tone of voice of of what i describe as mock maturity you know we're being fair and balanced and nuanced an adjective that's very popular um and you know um we don't want to be called conspiracy theorists. We don't want to come up with these wild accusations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and there they are, um, yeah, apparently it's... blissfully unaware of what is, what is happening in their society, you know, um, uh, it's because it's really being transformed and, and millions and millions of people are desperate because uh, they have no work and they have jobs. Yeah. They had jobs. They're not coming back. Yeah, and um, and yet you know the a sort of privileged class. Uh, it, it it's that that sense of you know they're playing a part in a already scripted drama in their head, and uh, they they're hoping they read their lines well or express their lines the right way, and and that's all that's 
That's all it's asked for them. Anyway, it put me in this, this horrible mood, you know, just because there's a sense of futility about it. I don't know how to reach those people. And, and they shun me. I mean, all the sort of establishment people that I know in Los Angeles, um, you know, avoid me like the plague because it's like step yeah. like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Avoid you and, like the coronavirus. And <laughs> um, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. And I think the strange thing is um, that, that once upon a time, if you were an artist and you held crazy, you know, I don't think my views are crazy at all, but if you were an artist and you held crazy political views and you had, you know, you were whatever, a hedonist, a womanizer, a, um, a, a satyr of some kind, as well as a drug addict, and you got into fistfights and bars all the time, and you found yourself homeless, that was okay because you were an artist. Yeah. <laughs> it was like yeah. part of a radical subject position. And today that that is not the case. You know, artists are like guys with MFA degrees and and they're corporate in a way and they're very polite and they're very inoffensive and they're very non-dangerous, non-threatening. Um and and I I didn't get that memo apparently. I don't know. <laughs> Well, you know, social media, like, uh, you know, we discussed before, uh, really does tend to uh, bring out the absolute very worst in people. And, mm. you know, I've, I've disconnected from it before. I've had plenty of uh, falling outs with friends, um, you know, being insulted by, you know, anything that I post that goes against the, uh, the narrative. Uh, you know, as a, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, my friend in the pool league uh, sent us a message and he said, um, uh, you know, I shoot billiards, and and he said um, that his uh, aunt and uncle uh, have are in the hospital with coronavirus. They probably won't make it. So he asked us to um, to not post any quote conspiracy theories about coronavirus. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, now he's asking us not to share our points of view because he has this. Uh, you know, sentimental, and albeit, you know, his uh, his family is is ill and may not make it, but that gives him somehow the permission to ask us not to share our points of view with him. Yeah, and and again, this is like this guy today. I mean, I, you know, I I have had relatives um, who were very old um, die. My my parents both died. Um, they were they were, my father at least was quite old. Um, and, um, I have other relatives who, who are ill, who have Alzheimer's, um, you know, I'm 69. So a lot of people I know are in their seventies, eighties. Mm -hmm. Um, and I expect that's, you know, you know, they're going to get sick. This is what happens as you get old is, is your friends and associates die. You know, yeah. um, I remember talking to Alan Mandel, you know, who, God knows how old Alan is now. He's, you know, he's remarkable. Um, yes. And, and he's still around on Facebook too, on social yeah, media. And, yeah. you know, and he said to me last time I saw him, we were talking and he said, I said something about, oh my God, so-and-so passed away. Um, a theater artist, you know, I forget who. And I said, it's just, that seems to happen a lot now. And he said, oh, well, wait till you're my age. It happens every week. And and he said it's the it's the it's the most terrifying part of of old age, you know, is that is that people slip away, um, 
into uh, into death. And and I just I wrote about this, of course, that I I think there's a kind of denial of death in all this. I mean, people people get sick, people die. It's 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 the human condition. And uh, I one of the ironies of Corona to me is that essentially children are immune. And I have something more to say about that. Children yes. are essentially immune and it attacks the elderly or you know, people who, who have other respiratory illnesses, old age, you know, if they smoked a lot or you know, were in the military and chemical warfare. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons men in Iran of a certain age um, were very susceptible to Corona because mm -hmm. they had they had suffered chemical warfare, um, but but uh, you know the the uh, the flu, the seasonal flu, targets children. Yes, not the elderly. I mean, the elderly too, but it's 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 particularly um, lethal for children often, and and that seems far more tragic to me than than octogenarians dying. But I, you know, nobody nobody likes anybody they love to die. And, yeah. and I understand there's a, there's a level of denial, but you well, know, this, this, this thing, like your friend's letter, I mean, my God. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's staggering. I don't, I, yeah. yeah, actually I'm at a loss what to say to that. Um, yeah. You know, um, speaking of death, uh, my parents are at the age, you know, they're getting into their, uh, my mom is 74. She has, she's in the final stages of dementia. And, oh, um, um, you know, actually this morning, uh, while I was, uh, while I was waking up, I heard the phone ring and it's very unusual that anybody calls me so early in the morning, but every time the phone rings at an unusual time, I always have the feeling like, okay, this is it. You know, right. my mom's gone. And, uh, you know, I've, I've come to terms with, uh, you know, with her death, uh, but, um, um, you, you know, there, there is that, there is that fear, but, but it's not, um, you know, I can't prevent her death. And I know the likely uh, cause of her death uh, will probably be some form of pneumonia, you know, right. yeah. so, um, but uh, anyway. Yeah, no, I think the other thing I wanted before, you know, we wanted to talk about the offstage in film and, yes. and I want to get to that because there, there's actually a kind of natural segue, isn't there? Um, yes. But uh, the other thing that I think depressed me and caused me to be kind of an asshole in this previous podcast was, um, was that I am seeing you know, the narrative that the government and the World Health Organization, global medical institutions, billionaire class, all of these people, the narrative they created for COVID um, has unraveled in large measure. There's more and more people who are very skeptical, more and more experts and doctors, certainly in Europe. You may not get this information in the U.S. as much, but certainly in Europe. Um, there are just countless voices um, medical voices, um, you know, expressing extreme skepticism um, about the way the whole thing has been uh, reported and the early wildly exaggerated predictions. 
So what I've noticed, and maybe this became obvious to me because I was away from social media for a couple of weeks, kind of mostly, mm-hmm. what is that is that there is a doubling down on, I mean, suddenly the, the internet is full of fact checkers, number mm-hmm. one, like, you know, Snopes clones. Um, and, and every decent left-wing dissenting, you know, uh, internet site, whether it's Off Guardian or Swiss Policy Research or any of these people that have really kept, um, kept up and done fabulous work covering the coronavirus, kept up with latest updates, they are being particularly targeted. I think Twitter's about to ban Off Guardian, as a matter of fact. Really? Um, yeah. And, and it's because it's, 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 you know, it's a desperate move to plug the holes in the dike because this story is leaking. You know, the COVID story is leaking. Yes. There's the numbers are not there, and hospitals are not overrun, and none of this stuff is happening the way it should. And yet, you know, Cuomo and Newsom and all of these people are issuing more and more draconian measures, threatening the the, the language has become more threatening and bullying, and um, and this in some ways is the most frightening part of this whole narrative. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it's one of the most frightening parts. And that is the way that uh, there, there is now a, an official kind of almost institutional definition of reality that you best adhere to, fact checkers. I mean, you know, if if you're saying that um, you are a conspiracy theorist and must be censored because you question the official narrative about COVID. That's rather frightening. You know, now we're, yeah. we really are entering, um, you know, the, the Orwellian uh, dystopic um, landscape where what, you know, and, and I've seen the effect on art. I mean, ostensibly this, these podcasts are supposed to be about art. And yeah. I, I think I've seen the effect. I mean, when doing these these podcasts, these one acts, and I want to thank all the writers, you know, and, and Jack Litton and God, mm-hmm. and all the actors and, and directors and everybody who's worked very hard. But I also sense one of the reasons it's been so hard uh, is is that it's just hard to get anything done, and people are reluctant. There's a there's a nagging reluctance, um, you know. To, to be associated with anything that that might be called out as you know, as, as I don't know, theory. yeah, as false <laughs> fake news, fake art, yeah. uh-huh. stepling, fake art. <laughs> um, but anyway, tell me about this essay um, you mentioned earlier because this oh, is so- a really favorite topic of mine: the off stage, the in cinema and in and theater, obviously. Yeah, and this is actually uh, something that you uh, have continually uh, spoken, even with, uh, you know, with Guy in these, um, you know, the conversation podcasts and, you know, the Aesthetic Resistant podcasts. And uh, I've always been struck how you say that film has um, uh, no offstage, so uh, it needs to create like uh, an uncanny leak to history somehow. Um, But, you know, I've I've always thought that film does have an offstage and I believe that comes in in the editing of the film in 
And what you, you know, something that is cut, let's say we start at one scene, we cut to another scene. What happens in between those scenes, whether they be temporal or, or spatial, the cuts that are there, I think something is hidden there and something um, could be uncovered that somehow will create that, uh, that link that you mentioned that, uh, that, is, um, that exists off stage in theater. And I think in, in theater, you know, you know a lot more about theater than I do, but um, I think that if the, in theater, the off stage is, is, is almost visible in the sense that it's not visible. It's visible in the sense that um, it's not there. And almost we, you know, we can't see it, but we can perceive it. However, in film, it seems to be a little more, uh, seems to be subtler because we perceive it subconsciously within the cuts of the film, but um, we don't really get that chance to, um, uh, to really experience it and feel it and, and uh, um, contrast it to what we're actually seeing on screen. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Actually, no, no, I love, I love the idea that um, it's there because it's not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me of a Miles Davis quote. I, if I may paraphrase it a little bit, he said, you know, don't play what's there, play what's not there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of the same thing. Um, uh, and, but, but that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's deep, Joe. <laughs> that might take several <laughs> hours of conversation, but yeah. I sense the truth of that. The, the part about, that absence um, being uh, the <laughs> the absence being present yeah. uh, is, but there's truth in that. I mean, we people experience that, and part of it is our language becomes all um, knotted and twisted in like a sophomore philosophy class or something, you know. Um, um, it, but but there, but one does experience absence, right? We we experience oh, absence in in a scene in a film or in a, in theater. Um, Lacan talks about absence enormously. Um, and, well, you know, yeah. Go uh, ahead. Just, just one, you know, just one example that I have is uh, you know the opening scene in Vertigo where they're having the the rooftop chase across San Francisco. And, right. uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart is, uh, you know, um, tries to make the jump, falls, he's cleaning, you know, uh, by, by his hands, he's about to fall. Uh, his partner comes over and helps him and his partner falls. And yet Jimmy Stewart is still there. Next thing we, next thing, uh, you know, we see the next scene, uh, Hitchcock cuts to um, a safe apartment in San Francisco. And Jimmy Stewart is there. Everything is fine. Um, he somehow got out of that, but how did he get out of that? And I've always been fascinated by that because yeah, th- there's yeah. something that happens there and Hitchcock doesn't, doesn't even, you know, it's, it's not relevant to, uh, to the on-screen drama, but it stays with us somehow. And, sure. sure. You know, so, you know, I've always equated that to, you know, how you say, um, you know, especially with Shakespeare, all the violence occurs off stage. Uh, you know, we're only informed of of the violence. Well, well, here we are only informed of um, that he's okay. We don't even question how 
how he got right. there. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's a Greek tragedy is what where the violence happens off stage, but point taken. Um, and and it's a really good point. And, and that's actually a really good example, I think, because Hitchcock is, you know, one of the reasons Hitchcock, I feel, is so deceptive. We talked about this before. Um, but but you and I have this thing for Hitchcock. Um, but one of the, you know, the reasons he's so deceptively, um, you know, that, that people read him the wrong way is, is because everything's very subtle. And, and it's in those funny uh, elliptical edits and, and, you know, missing um, connective scenes that you start to realize Hitchcock's actually, uh, you know, structurally a lot more radical than, than, than people think, whatever that means. But it, it's almost not applicable when, when you're talking about Hitchcock. And I've, oh, see, this, this brings up something else that, mm-hmm. that I really, I, maybe it, the word is struggling with. Um, because I've, 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 last essay I wrote on the blog, which is mm-hmm. actually going to appear in Off Guardian 2 any day now. Oh, great. Uh, is, um, is that the, the death of the avant-garde, that the avant-garde kind of disappeared and mm-hmm. um, uh, how and why that happened is of interest to me. And, and yet I'm, I'm unsure quite um, how to fill in a lot of blanks I know that um, that the stuff we think of as theater of the absurd, the the mm-hmm. movement that began in the late forties, really the fifties, you know, Beckett and Genet and mm-hmm. um, Ionesco, and mm-hmm. on to you know Arabal even, and and then to Pinter and and you know even like Howard Barker and and people like this. Um, uh, and then intersecting sort of sideways to that were, were people like Tadeusz Kantor in Poland and Grotowski and, um, but then Peter Brook intersecting from yet another angle and they were all radical theater makers and they were doing something different, but Brook and Cantor were directors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they were ushering in, a, a, and the living theater too, Julian Beck. I mean, they were ushering in um, a director's theater and the textual importance receded a bit. And Herbert Blau, I think somewhere in one of his last essays makes note of this too. And uh, I'm not, I, I think that the effect that had the text receding in that sense, mm-hmm. receding in importance, meant that younger artists in the 70s and 80s who were playwrights, but also filmmakers, mm-hmm. uh, were, were trying to um, radicalize narrative structure, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's even, even before that you have Roe Grier and you know, all these different experiments in, in, in novel writing. And, um, but, but, but they were trying to radicalize the structure of narrative and it was a failed experiment somehow. Because when you look back, the best work, the, the best writing in theater 
in theater and in prose were people like Hantke and Thomas yeah. Bernhard and Heiner Mueller. Um, and uh, they were not, they were avant-garde, I suppose, but in a very different way. They were, Peter Hanke tells very straight ahead stories, ultimately. Um, certainly in, in that famous trilogy that was kind of everybody in, in America's introduction to, to Hanke, the goalie's anxiety at the penalty kick. And, mm -hmm. um, that, that uh, and then to Seabold, and I, I remain on the fence about Seabold, but, uh, but there was something there of, of some importance, even if he was kind of a, you know, I don't know, the ultimate distilled bourgeois writer, suffering bourgeois writer. Uh, they, they, were, they were returning to narrative um, because they sensed the importance of telling a story. Other things were radicalized and, and they were telling a story with intense, acute, uh, close inspection, but they were still telling a story. They were not doing what ended up becoming Robert Wilson, right? Yes. They, they, they were not doing that. Um, and I love Richard uh, Foreman, for example, but, but in a way he was, he was, the text was receding in a sense too with Foreman. Foreman's a complex figure though, and, and I love him, so I don't want to, uh, yeah, I, I so, don't know. Whatever so, my misgivings are, I'm going to keep to myself. Anyway, yeah, go. So, so you know, what do you think had, had led to some of that? What do you think had led to the vanishing of the avant-garde? I know you talk about the institutionalization of, um, sorry, the, the, the writing institutes. Um, but, well, I, uh, I think that was a big part of it, you know. Um, and, but it was also the domesticating of artists, back to that that notion again. I mean, um, you have Brendan Behan and, and, and people like that yeah. who were not going to be domesticated or, or John Retchie even more yeah. recently, you know, and um, William Burroughs. And, um, but, but that, that was one thing that, that, that there was a kind of institutionalization you know, a process going on. But it was also that society in a larger sense was um, after the 50s, um, there, there, there was this social revolution of some sort, cultural revolution with the 60s. Yeah. And it, and then there was Vietnam and they overlapped and there was civil rights and uh, the state decided that they couldn't allow for the kind of independent journalism that happened during Vietnam that was critical, you know, the free press and, yeah. and they, they were going to put a stop to that and they did. And those kind of voices um, were disappeared, marginalized, made invisible. And um, the state became much more sophisticated in terms of propaganda. They controlled the message. They incorporated, you know, a more sophisticated marketing scheme to get their message out. Mm -hmm. The country's forever moving to the right. The government's moving to the right. I mean, Richard Nixon would be f considered a leftist today. And, and so uh, you have all of these forces 
um, after Vietnam, uh, you you sense, I mean, Robert Stone's Dog Soldiers is the great novel and Who Will Stop the Rain is the great adaptation of that novel. Um, the, the best film about the 60s ever, but, um, and probably the best novel about the 60s, but, but what happened was without that free press and with suddenly a government that was cracking down on dissent and free speech already, um, were trying, they were trying to neutralize dissent by incorporating it and turning it into its opposite. And you saw that with, with um, you know, the Panthers were hounded, put in jail, shot, yeah. exiled, yeah. and replacing them were, you know, the, a domesticated um, version of that. I mean, it happened with, with every single movement. Um, <clears throat> you and I have talked about you know, gay rights and, and queer culture. And, mm -hmm. and you know, funny that John Retchie came up a minute ago. Yeah. Um, because... Okay. Go ahead, John, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, please. We could... Yeah, you know, all of that has become um, um, uh, just assimilated into, into the mainstream. You know, I see all of my, uh, all of my gay queer friends, um, you know, they're all, you know, they're all supporting the official narrative of Corona and, uh, you know, shaming people who uh, don't wear a mask, who, uh, uh, who, uh, you know, engage in, uh, uh, in, in sex and hooking up. It's all, um, it's all, uh, you know, just become anathema to them, which is, uh, you know, something that we used to relish in before, so, uh, something almost necessary has just become uh, forbidden and uh, shameful. Well, but yeah. I, I do I do want to say this. It seems absurd to me that um, anyone would want to um, get a degree in writing, especially creative writing. Yeah. There, 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 there's some there's a disconnect about that, um, especially when you're getting um, feedback from other people who have uh, creative writing degrees. Um, or, you know, you get people telling you how to write a screenplay. Um, uh, it just seems absolutely um, against everything that goes into any kind of creative writing. Well, I have a friend, um, actually, we, she's someone you know as well. Her daughter got um, an uh, a MA in creative writing from somewhere. Mm -hmm. it doesn't and and now she's getting her PhD. Jesus, I didn't know they gave PhDs for creative writing. <laughs> yeah. What does that look like? I don't. Yeah, I, I have. I don't know. Uh, no idea. But but back to you know the the disappearance of the avant garde because I'm I'm not answering you fully and and um, I think it was you know the social forces of repression, Guy Debord, you know, in May '68. Mm -hmm. Um, was outlining it already, the society of the spectacle in the rise of the internet and social media, um, you know, 30 years after that, but it was the front edges of that stuff was, was there. We were sort of paranormally anticipating that, I think, as a, as a collective. And the, I, I did a, a blog post about, um, Gordon Lish called Digital Cora. So anybody interested yeah. can go to my blog and look up Digital yeah. And it touches on the way 
people like Lish, you know, who may very well have been an intolerable guy and an asshole, but he was a brilliant teacher and editor. And, and the way writing was taught at one time, because I mean, at one time, the Iowa Writers Lab was a great, great place to go, you know, study writing, even mm -hmm. if I think the idea of studying writing is, is problematic. Mm -hmm. But today, there's nothing like that. And um, it was radical artists were, were being, um, just like radical politics, were, were being um, systematically uh, marginalized. That's all. And the working class was being marginalized. You see, all of those guys, if you go back to the early 20th century and you look at all the, we're talking the U, let's just talk the U.S., who were all the, you know, the most important writers were not people who came from rich families and went to exclusive schools and none of them. It was all working class voices, almost exclusively. Well, mm -hmm. I can think of a couple who weren't, but not many. And, yeah. and the point was that, that those voices have, I mean, there's nobody working in Hollywood really anymore who is working class. Um, I mean, you, as recently as people like Steve McQueen, I mean, Steve McQueen was, you know, a kid who grew up in reform schools and orphanages and, and the merchant marines eventually, you know, um, as people did at that time um, and found his way into acting. And someone said, geez, he's like a good looking guy. Let's put him. And he suddenly was taking acting classes and was put in a couple of films. And that was that that's a process that doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, Ryan Gosling was in the Mickey Mouse Club. That's, you know, that's where we are now. So, so um, uh, it, it was part of a whole social movement um, and all these things I'm talking about, but it was something else. Because I talk a lot about abstract expressionism. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because I was reading class notes from Charles Olson recently, and I really kind of love Olson. Um, and he was talking about the importance of abstract expressionism for him and, and Franz Klein in particular. Um, but um, that was the 50s, was the height of ABEX and the New York School. And um, it was the last sincere movement in art that I can think of because it was, it marked the end of sincerity in a sense, because what came after that was the, the ascension, gradual ascension of irony. Um, and um, that's really beautiful, John, the end of sincerity. That's, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful phrase. But wonderful it's, idea. But, well, thanks. But you know, the, the, um, the, the, the rise of irony had really unfortunate effects, um, I think. And um, my feeling like I was too snarky yesterday on the podcast, I didn't dislike anything I said, I disliked the way I said it. Um, because it changes what you're saying and and but this is but it but it speaks to how deeply um you know uh how you internalize that is for everybody that that you can't escape it the level of irony in contemporary western culture is 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 hard to overstate it's 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 enormous 
And we all kind of suffer under the weight of it, I think. And you see it in mass media, you see it in Hollywood. Um, it's so deeply ingrained in Hollywood that it's hard to even know how to talk about it. And it's one of the reasons, back to the offstage, it's one of the reasons, and, and you and I, well, we're gonna end up talking film noir again, I know. Um, but it's one of the reasons those noirs Mm -hmm. stuff like crisscross and yeah. um and file on thelma jordan and angel face and all of these films where the sidewalk ends um the phoenix city story why they seem so potent today um let alone you know even the earlier stuff um they drive by night or or whatever you want i mean films like high sierra high sierra is an extraordinarily simple story right yeah, um, and it's it's full of odd sentimental, but it doesn't matter because there's something in Bogart as you know Mad Dog Earl, I think his name mm -hmm. is, um, yeah. and 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 his driving up that mountain um, <laughs> that gets me every time. You know, yeah. it's it conjures up something that's like what Bly used to call call the. Um, the cold stone floor of of tragedy ah. and um and 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 it approximates that somehow and cj hopkins the other day commented on social media because he liked my essay or something but he said it reminded him of heiner Mueller quote and i'm going to forget the quote now but it was something about the fear of tragedy is linked to why there's never a, going to be a revolution or something like that. And I, I countered with Adorno's comment about every um, work of art is an uncommitted crime. And then I thought of Lacan's thing about our mothers can only love us as criminals. Oh, that's um, great, yeah. You know, but all of these things kind of, kind of come together somewhere. And it explains some of this loss of the avant-garde. It was a mass domestication of radical um, art and culture and politics. You know, the working class was 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 eliminated, was further oppressed and marginalized and stigmatized, and people became ashamed of being working class. Uh, and and. Um, the the Vietnam War led to an official overt material state, um, you know, escalation of surveillance and and uh, you know tracking of of dissent and and radical voices, and culturally, um, the internet happened in the in the hands of you know billionaire yeah, uh -huh. silicon silicon valley you know guys that that were not radical at all and and um it was about manipulation and marketing and and advertising and guy debord you know well i'll tell you as great a society of the spectacle is an even more um trenchant book is the book he wrote 20 years after that called comments on the society of the spectacle um, mm -hmm. which he wrote in the 80s. And it's, a, it's, amazingly, um, it's amazingly prescient. It's a, it's a very good book. But anyway, what he's saying is kind of, I'm kind of echoing that in a sense. And I, I think this is, 
this leads us back on on one level to this question of the off stage, right? Mm -hmm. yes. um, because your point, you know, that, that the off stage is found somewhere in, you know, the interstices of of that of the editing room, that that cut, that splice, that. Um, and we used to do that at the film school. We used to mm -hmm. have like experiments in voiceover, right? Mm -hmm. And if you have a camera close up, somebody talking to somebody off screen, off camera, out of frames, telling a story mm -hmm. and everybody watches. And then you go, okay, let's cut that, um, that scene, keeping the, you know, begins on the face and then we cut to anything you want. Um, yeah. Cherry trees in blossom in Tokyo. But the, the narration stays the same. And then look at how much the scene has changed. And of course, it's changed, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, Eisenstein, uh, you know, with this, um, with this, mo the theory of his montage. Um, uh, how, you know, I actually read an interesting essay on, uh, on Eisenstein recently. And um, the essay was talking about how Eisenstein was concerned with being able to have some kind of um, almost a scientific formula for creating emotion within uh, within film, and he discovered that by you know that by by uh, by cutting by by juxtaposing two images together that it would generate some type of emotion. But I think where um, where Eisenstein may have, or at least this essay, I think it's Peter Wolin uh, who wrote it on uh, Eisenstein. Uh, I think where he kind of falls short is, yes, he's focused. He's focused on what is on screen, but he is, uh, he's, he, he 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 doesn't he doesn't really take too much into account what uh, what is not off screen, what he is not choosing to show, um, and I think that's you know, like I said, that's just as important, especially uh, if you're trying to tell essentially a straightforward narrative. Um, yeah, I think that I think that's right, and and that brings me back. We got kind of we <laughs> we're touching on so many things. I am my my scattered mind, but um, <laughs> we were talking about storytelling that the the receding of the text in favor of a director's theater, and it, it affected cinema too, you know, um, and and w one of the interesting enigmas or, or um, I guess it's an enigma, that, that exists in the history of cinema is why avant-garde cinema, the guys that Gene Youngblood once wrote about in that book, um, you know, why that stuff, um, Jonas Mikas and people like that, I mean, why that mm -hmm. stuff just doesn't, is, is so bad. You know, I don't want to say bad. It's so boring. It's so not interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way that when performance art became a thing and then installation art and installation artists started using video, right? Mm -hmm. And they intentionally flattened the, the, um, the emotions out of the videos almost always. You know, there was a certain kind of convention that was people were just reciting lines. You weren't supposed to be playing a part. It wasn't supposed to be performative. All that, that stuff, the lingering residue from the circus and the seaside resort amusement that came with the birth of cinema was, was eliminated. 
And um, so installation artists working with video are, are doing this thing that feels to me very much like that the Jonas Mikas-esque experimental uh -huh. cinema. Uh -huh. um, and I've and I've just never gotten it. I've never liked it. And and maybe it's because I'm steeped in in theater before anything else. I don't know. But um, I think that if you're talking about an offstage in film, see, I think there are certain directors that are aware of what we're talking about. We're aware. Fassbinder, Cirque. Yeah, Cooper. Whether they sure would articulate well. it that way, yeah, that that. You, you, because you feel it, you feel them somehow pointing you to, to that absence you rather brilliantly called so visible, um, the visible absence, you know, the present absence um, that, is, that is there in, in a Hitchcock or a Cirque or something. And, and I think that that's really an important lesson in this and and we could talk probably for several more hours on that because i have i mean that's an interesting time we should actually talk about it again because i think um i i think that's really interesting and and i don't have a i haven't thought it through at all but um but i don't dispute it you know i think you may be right um, yeah well you know that's you know that that's just uh you know one way that i try to or or that that I read film. For example, I saw Point Blank uh, the other day, the Borman film. And yeah. it's, been, uh, it's been a while since I, um, since I've uh, visited that film. I think you were, you were the first one who, uh, who pointed it out to me maybe about 10 years ago and then uh, I revisited it again. And that, uh, I mean, it just, it's, it really is um, just such a, such a strange and beautiful film with no explanations at all um, that would be required today. Like that film would never be able to be made today. And um, you know, when 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 you look at the cuts in that film, um, it just brings up in a way more questions than it you know than than it answers. And I find that I find that well, it's an amazing film. I agree. I I I, I think. Um... And Borman said the same thing. I mean, Borman gave an interview. I think it was him and De Palma and somebody were giving an interview. This is 10 years ago already. Maybe not quite. And they said, and Borman mentioned point blank. He said, that film would never get made today. Yeah. He said, how would that film get made? It would never get made today. Um, and, well, you know what's course, interesting about that film, John? Um, so, uh, you know, my, my partner was watching it because uh, I had recommended it to him. And I, I came in about halfway through the film and I started watching the film halfway. And it's, it's almost like uh, you just pick up the narrative where, where it is. I, I, I did not need to see like the first, you know, the first third of that film to understand what was going on. Um, and I think very few, you know, very few films, well, actually most films, most good films really do work that way. Um, you know, th th there are others that are, you know, where you, where you do need some kind of information. But if you really want to feel the film, if you want to, you know, feel these, um, uh, the emotions or, or, uh, or see what the director is saying, you don't need to see the entire film from beginning to end you could pick up in the narrative where it goes and just follow you could even stop 
20 minutes into the film and still get an idea of what, you know, what the film is. I totally agree. Um, I think most people would not agree with us, but I totally agree. And, yeah. and I think that, um, here's the paradox though, right? In a sense, what I was saying earlier about um, the text in theater receding quite a bit um, it was reintroduced, actually, one of the people that, you know, Mednick and Padua and Sam Shepard mm -hmm. were people that were bringing text back. But that that retreat in favor of a director's theater that perhaps wrongly ended up with with like a Robert Wilson or somebody. But but at, and that and that there were writers, important writers who understood a return to storytelling was essential, Honke, Bernhardt, you know, and, and the precursor to that might be Herman Brock, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, uh, and they were investigating how to be a storyteller without resorting to, um, you know, the conventions of, of 19th century, you know, of Henry James and, yes. and, and Flaubert and some, and, and, so, so they were they were emphasizing storytelling, that that the that there was a basic importance to telling a story, at the same time that the story, once you were telling that story correctly properly, um, the story then ceased to be important. Yes. What became important was was the structure around that, but you couldn't get to that structure if you didn't know how to tell a story. Absolutely, yes. And and so um, I think I'm amazed, frequently amazed at Hollywood today, um, at an inability of writers to tell a story, mm -hmm. and so they're stuck at that point in in the process. I mean my god those those studio hacks from the 40s were all educated guys basically who who knew they were they were writers and they understood um the structure of telling a story and that certain things had to be um in a story and that that there was a tradition of importance to storytelling i mean it, you know a film that occurred to me this week apropos of 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 this though, uh, is Force of Evil, the Abe Polanski film. Yeah. One of the great noirs and one of the few noirs set in New York. Um, and then of course Polanski was, was, um, was blacklisted and didn't do another film for like 35 years. Uh, but, but it's an incredible script and it's, it's, you know, it's so literary or something like, um, Oh, what's the Vert Lancaster, Tony Curtis? Um, oh, yeah. Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, James Wong Howe is a cinematographer. Uh, oh, my God. It's, my mind is a blank. Uh, the newspaper is supposed to be Walter Winchell, essentially. Vert Lancaster as Walter Winchell. Um, Tony Curtis's greatest part, probably. Um, anyway, the, the, everybody knows what I just, my mind is absolutely a blank. Um, but you know that's an incredibly literate and extraordinarily well. Sweet smell of success, right? Yes, sweet yeah, smell. Sweet of smell of success. Of success. Um, incredible, incredible script. You know, just incredible script. Um, but there's, there's, you know, what's fascinating about art, and you look, you look at the films of Val Luton, 
ghost ship and I walk with a zombie. So, and I refer to them, it seems like every podcast I'm starting to think. But, but because Luton, those weren't great scripts, but Luton made them better than they should have been because he somehow respected that there was a story that had to be put out there. And then after that, he did, you know, that, you know, Jeffrey O'Brien said they weren't films, they were symbolist poems. Um, and wow, and it's kind of true. And, and, you know, they certainly weren't horror films, which is what I think yeah. Arkeo was paying him to make, but he yeah. never made one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's the paradox, right? And, and it may be that, um, the, to, to do film today or to do theater today means to go back and um, learn how to draw realistically with a pencil or something, do you know? That's, well, yeah, that's... it's a Trojan horse. You know, you present these ideas. You, you know, again, I, I am almost embarrassed to keep referring back to, you know, to Hitchcock. <laughs> Cause, yeah, no, no, I'm happy to keep talking about Hitchcock. You know, but he, he would present, you know, these, um, you know, these just, you know, very well-written three-act Hollywood structures. You know, he would work within the genre of, um, of the thriller, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the, um, yeah, of, of the thriller. And he, within that, he would present what he really, wanted to say um, yeah yeah and, and, and you know the interesting thing about Hitchcock too is he he never really wrote his scripts uh, he always worked with a different writer and he would work he, he would work he would convene with the writer every day this was part of uh, this was part of his process the script writing process he would convene with the writer uh, and they would discuss what you know how the story needed to unfold. He would never really write his scripts himself, but he always instructed others on how to do it. And I thought that was, uh, you know. Well, but see, I, that makes a certain amount of sense in a way, you know, when you think about it. Um, and and it's interesting that that Hitchcock is always credited quite rightly with being such a visual storyteller. Um, and and I don't know. I always end up returning. Um, returning these conversations to the lack of an audience. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I don't know, one of the, you know, big critical hits last year was, was Marriage Story. That was the title, right? Oh, God, what a, yeah. You know, and it's just like, I, I sat there, I didn't get through it, but I'm really dumbfounded, you know, um, because I thought, A, if this were an acting class, I would stop the exercise. And, and berate those two actors. Yeah. But two, it's, 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 not even, it's not even passable, like hack melodrama. I don't know what it is. It's appallingly stupid. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know who watches it and thinks it's good. I wanna talk to those. I wanna understand why they think it's good. Um, so, so something has happened, something has happened and, and uh, well, but well, I think you know I I, I I also have to think it's like the saturation of uh, of television um, of cable you know there are literally thousands of, of channels that you could watch when you turn on the television uh, you can go on YouTube and watch millions and millions of videos you could 
open up uh, your TikTok or whatever and watch a five second video of, of, of your friends. It, it, it's, there's so much, so much out there that um, it's, it, it's like we at once don't have anything to watch and yet we have so much that we feel we need to consume. Right. Right. Well, and, but I think you're right. Also the, the cable, the, the rise of reality TV has done a lot. It coincides with, with the erosion of education and, mm -hmm. and literacy. Um, and, and that the sound of people, they don't, I want to say stupid people, but that's not fair. I mean, I would sound probably like an idiot with a microphone stuck in front of my face, or if I somehow was bribed to appear on a reality show doing something, you can't, it, it's just built into that whole thing is malignant and toxic and um, predicated on embarrassment and, and humiliation. And yes. nobody, nobody escapes that. Nobody looks good. Everybody's guilty. Um, Everybody knows they're there to get a paycheck and are ashamed of it and on and on and on. And you know, and, and, and yet these people ride, um, ride this just awful sadism into, in, into fame. And yeah. I think that's actually what's, what's pretty disgusting about it. It's like they're, they're almost not ashamed of being made fun of on screen, of, of being turned into a meme where you're sitting across from a cat you know, it's like, that's your claim to fame, to fame. It's, it's really, it's, you know, it's, it's really uh, grotesque, actually. Well, man, I think we'll wrap it up here. This is where, but this was a great conversation. And yes, John, I, I love it. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I almost want to say like, uh, you know, after, uh, you could easily create a, a syllabus for every one of these, um, conversations that uh you know that are featured on the uh, on the on uh, on the podcast yeah you know jack Littman mentioned that too that maybe we should maybe we will um of some at least partial uh that would be fun and it would be interesting for me to see um maybe how repetitive i am i don't know or not or <laughs> what things oddly crop up um yeah. that i didn't expect but thank you, and, and we'll do it again because you're one of my favorite people to talk to these days. Oh, thank and, you, John. That means a lot. Thank you. And, um, you know, stay safe in, uh, <laughs> in California. Um, yeah. Not from COVID, but, but from Gavin Newsom, if nothing oh. else. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, we'll, we'll do this again soon. And Wes Walker's play is up at um, the Quarantine One Acts on SoundCloud. Listen oh, really? To Wes is a play, great. Yeah, and Wes is a great writer, man. It's, yes, absolutely. You know, and so people should check it out. All right, thank you, Joe Nava. Okay. We'll do this again soon. Thank you, John. You take care of yourself. Uh, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> Adios. Bye -bye. Adios.